Welcome back to season nine of the Millennial Pastor Podcast. I'm your guest host, Latia Frazier, and along for the ride will be my ableist sidekick, Josiah Jones. Listen now for honest conversations about disability in the church. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the podcast. On today's episode, we have Carlos. Hey, Carlos, how are you? Can you tell us uh, your name, who you are, anything like that as a way of introduction and any yeah. denominational affiliation, if you have any? <laughs> yeah, so I, my name is Carlos Thompson. Um, I'm currently serving as the Assistant Professor of Church and Community Theology at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. I also direct the Friendship House community here, which is a community that uh, houses individuals who live with intellectual disabilities and individuals who don't. And they're all students at the seminary pursuing theological education and formation together. Um, Denominational affiliations is a bit slippery for me. I've, I've worked in anywhere from 12 to 15 different denominations um, and served in one pastoral capacity or another. So preaching, lay preaching, um, administering elements, things like that. But I describe myself <laughs> as a charismatic reformed Pentecostal. Hmm. I can relate to all those terms. <laughs> there, we <go. laughs> there we go. Yeah. Um, but I'm also heavily formed by, um, you know, Benedictine spirituality, Eastern Orthodoxy, and the work of Henry Nouwen. And so uh, it, it's a bit of a, a gamut. But um, my home is within the Reformed tradition, and I happily accept that as they embrace me in return. Good. Sounds great. And these are, uh, this is a question that I've asked all our guests thus far, like, how do you locate yourself within the disability community, especially because, like, uh, this is a podcast, so nobody can see anybody. And (laughs) at the same time, um, I know that you do. So uh, (laughs) how would you, what do you prefer? Do you prefer person first? or uh identity first language good question that's good questions so for me that that's been a bit of a journey Mm -hmm. um so i was born with cerebral palsy and then adopted out of cartagena colombia in latin america and so my story is is sort of shrouded in a little bit of mystery there are a lot of unanswered questions for me i don't really know why i ended up with the diagnosis that i ended up with i don't really have those answers but my whole life has been sort of influenced by living with an embodied form of of a disability. And so many of my young years were spent in the hospital. Um, I was given access to good doctors as a result of being adopted by the family I was adopted by. And a lot of my spiritual journey began on my back in a hospital bed, um, asking questions about God and, and being confused about the fact that I came to North America thinking it was sort of the promised land of sorts. But after being here for, for a minute, I began to realize uh, same problems, different mask. Mm. And so at the age of eight, I remember getting a surgery done on my back where they slice it open, cut some nerves, and hopefully loosen up some of my muscles so that one day I'd be able to stand upright and, and walk. Um, and it was, it was risky. And I remember in my eight-year-old brain praying this prayer, uh, 
God, I don't really know anything about you or want a whole lot to do with you. However, if I wake up from this surgery and there is still a life to live, you can have it. Mm. And so from that time forward, um, I, I knew that I was going to be a pastor. I didn't really know what that meant, but that's what I knew I was going to do. So anyway, um, why that matters is because uh, for me, initially, I grew up in a world where if you love Jesus, you're going to be a pastor or a missionary. Um, and if you have a disability, you push through. Right? <laughs> so, so this idea of what um, what a lot of disability scholars have begun to term super crypt. Yes. Uh, that, that was like my bread and butter. You know, that that's everything. And uh, it served me well to a point. But once I realized that that's what I was actually doing, trying to pass as non-disabled or trying to be the very inspiration that I said I didn't want to be, those kinds of things, then I became more comfortable with someone saying, um, I am disabled or I have a disability. That doesn't create issues for me. Um, I live with a disability and that drastically informs how I see the world and how the world sees me. And that that's not a bad thing. Um, but that's where I'm at now. Where I was in the beginning of this journey was, um, I'm Carlos. That's it. Just stop there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so when people said, you know, do you, uh, are you, are you sort of a big fan of person first language? My response is, I don't have a preference now, but mm. if you do, can we talk about why? Yeah. Yeah, I would say that I don't have a preference, but I am intentional about when mm. I use which. Uh, yeah. And that if I'm in a room where I know that the majority of the room are folks that don't identify as folks with disabilities, I tend toward person first. Uh -huh. um, but if I know I'm in a room where it's just us crippled people, I tend toward identity first. And I think... As I'm trying to unpack why I do that, it's a point of education for folks, I think, mm. who do, who aren't exposed to people with disabilities a lot. And I think it's also a way to honor the work that, that disability advocates did before me, who mm. were very intentional about mm. wanting people with disabilities to be seen as people because we weren't seen that way. And so I can I can name that and honor my ancestors Absolutely. and those who are still alive who were part of that movement that have made my life just a little bit yeah. easier. Not that like having a disability today is that much easier, but I, I would say that we we have made some um inroads in, in that way to at least be seen as people. That's good. That's good. Yeah, thanks. I mean, even just listening to you talk about, as I think about why I use that language and when, I'm reminded of the fact that, that I have a particular relationship with the medical community. Mm. Um, you know, what some, what some disability activists and, and spokespeople have termed uh, the medical complex yeah. is, is a good way of describing it. Because on one hand, my whole life, is is covered by a certain interaction with medicinal realities yes right? um and and that's painful right my body was seen more as a project or a problem or a puzzle right to be fixed solved and, and figured out but mm -hmm. at the same time um 
I think we miss something when we pit the medical community and medical complex against the reality of disability. Right. Uh, the reality is it's it well at least at least for me, sometimes it's really painful and really difficult living with CP. There are days when I wake up and I'm 34 and I feel 75. Amen right? to that. <laughs> you know, and so having no intervention from the medical community would drastically change not just the way I live my life, but the quality of life that I live. Mm. Um, however, being able to acknowledge that and say, I can push back against some of the dehumanizing ideologies that are yeah. sort of present within that community. I see that happening in the way that you use language. And, and I think that's really, really beautiful and hospitable to right. say, depending on who's in the room, I say it differently. And there's a reason for that. I think that's. Well, I think that's true of any marginalized community, right? That if we're talking to the predominant yeah. community, right? We code switch. Yeah. And so in that way, I think uh, it's the same. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering how living with CP has shaped your your view of your own body image. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. So um it depends on the day of the week yeah for sure so ethnically not that this matters in an explicit sense but it does matter for the narrative um i am i'm from latin america but biologically i'm nigerian i'm spanish and i'm indigenous colombian you put all that together and you get you get a weird mix but conventionally i happen to fit a particular paradigm in terms of what is perceived to be attractive, right? Um, that has impacted the way that I live, right? Um, so when I was younger, I guess, <laughs> younger, I was um, really involved in like physical fitness, working out, um, the fitness industry. Um, bodybuilding was a bit of a hobby for me. And, and I happened to have the genetics because of the sort of African indigenous side of, of my gene pool that it, it it was something that I was good at but also got results from and so when I would be in the hospital and and need to recover from surgery I'd go back to the weight room and as my body changed to not just mirror what our society says was attractive but surpass it in many ways uh, then my self-identity and my relationship with my body also changed. Mm -hmm. uh, I had the appearance and the demeanor of being very secure in my own skin. Uh, I was happy when I looked in the mirror, put it that way, right? Um, however, I never wear shorts. And it's very rare that anyone will ever see my feet. So am I really as secure as I appear to be? Unlikely. Mm -hmm. Right. But this all goes back to the whole like, I'm trying to pass, but I'm not really willing to admit that I'm trying to do that. <laughs> right. Um, it took years for me to get to the point where I was like, actually, I don't necessarily like this part of me. And mm -hmm. I can admit that. Now, what I can't tell you, because I don't really know completely, is why those parts of me were so difficult to accept and sometimes still mm -hmm. are. I don't think it's necessarily the appearance of them. 
I think it's just a reminder that they give me of how much pain I'm in sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, because there comes a point sometimes where I feel like I have to just sort of like tell the pain, I'm going to come back to you in a few hours. <laughs> yes. That makes sense? So, yes, absolutely. So it's, like, <laughs> so it's like, if I'm, if I'm, you know, wearing shorts to the beach or whatever, like I look down and I see my legs and on a good day, that's why I say it depends on the day of the week. On a good day, what I'm reminded of is the fact that I'm a human being with limits. I'm a creature just like anybody else. And God has endowed me with a call. And these embodied realities remind me that I am a creature. And that's actually a good thing. Um, on a bad day, they remind me that I'm a young man in an old man's body. Mm-hmm. And it's harder to ignore what you're looking at. Right. And so I still wrestle with sort of how do I relate to my body? And my response to that has become. I believe that God is good mm-hmm. and God in some way placed me in this body and somehow fallen nature relates to that. I don't know how, but God is still good. And so I will not look at this, this good thing that God has done and say, it's not good enough for me. And that's, that's the journey I'm sort of presently on. My wife is really good at gently reminding me that I'm on that journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm still on it, you know, especially as I age. Shoot, when you're in your 20s, it's easy to like your body sometimes. But when you're in your 30s and 40s and you're like, everything's headed south. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> For sure. I can totally relate to that. I remember it took me a long time to wear, well, I grew up also you know, I'm just in this very charismatic Pentecostal. So there's another uh, one. But uh, yeah, very it nice. took me a long time to wear a dress without like stockings or yeah. leggings, right? Because I thought that like those leggings or stockings were covering up the things I didn't want people to see about my legs. When in all reality, people could see that they're bent, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, and the other thing that scared me and still does is when people want to do like these foot washing services. Yes. I'm like, I'm gonna go the other way, run. Like, oh, or, or can you do my hands? Because uh-uh. <laughs> one, it's not. I'm not ashamed of them. I think question mark, but because maybe sometimes <laughs> I, I don't know <laughs> question mark. But I think it's like what people's reaction to that would be and because i also have cp so that could also mean like spazzing and then people really don't know what the hell to do i'm like i'm fine but you're touching my legs and they don't like them (laughs) or they don't like that right so there's there's always that so either i'm like please god don't do this or i like find a convenient time to go to the bathroom when people are like (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was, um, so I went to Southeastern University of Assemblies of God in Lakeland, Florida, and that's sort of where I was embedded for a long time, was within the Assemblies of God, and, uh, you know, I mean, foot washing, it's it's a thing, I guess, yeah. you know, and, <laughs> and so we're doing this foot washing service in the chapel, and it's a relatively big university in terms of its connection to the denomination, so there's a lot of students, yeah. and uh, I'm I'm having what I would what I would think would be a low level sort of anxiety, panic response, yes. knowing I'm walking to the chapel. And I'm like, these people, <laughs> these people, 
I don't want to touch my feet, you know? <laughs> and uh, and it wasn't a pain thing. Like, it doesn't inflict pain. It's just, it's just awkward. Yes. And so I start praying, it, like, God, if there's any other way, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I get to the place where you're supposed to take a chair and then one of the members of the faculty is going to wash your feet. And what ended up happening was, uh, I don't remember who the faculty member was, but they reached for my hands. Yes. And they started washing my hands instead of my feet. And I remember thinking, this is beautiful. Yeah. And for me, for me, this is perfect. And right. in, in one sense, the principle still applied because right. I walk on my hands. That's right. And so I remember walking out of that service feeling very seen yeah. um, and later uh, a faculty member it wasn't that one came up to me and said I noticed what happened what did you think what was your reaction and I remember saying I know that the Holy Spirit was present in that moment and did something because I didn't have to say a word and someone in the moment without missing a beat accommodated and probably didn't even know that's what they were doing. Right. Right. Um, and that was at the heart of an Assemblies of God school during my undergraduate education, where every other day of the week, someone's trying to lay hands on me. <laughs> yes. Oh. yes. So like, so like that was really important for me to witness and experience because what I saw, I think, um, or maybe maybe saw is is a bit of an ableist image there. Maybe, maybe it's more of what I internalized in that mm -hmm. moment was even in these spaces where we have a particular way of looking at theology, embodiment, healing, health, wholeness, ideals. Even in these spaces, God in His goodness says, "I'm present." Right. You're trying to bend toward me. I promise it won't break you. Yeah, and I love it. So, yeah, I, I'll never forget that. But it's interesting to hear you mention foot washing because I hate it. I, I really I, I just, do. I do hate it. And it, uh, <laughs> which I'm glad that you had that experience. My experiences were, well, if you were just like surrender, it was really yeah. gaslighting to me. Right. Like it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Like it's because you're too prideful. I'm like, no, I'm literally having like, yeah. like, like, no, and yeah. I want to go to the bathroom. Can, can we not? Can I ask you a question about that whole experience? Yes. I've never, I mean, I've never even. I don't. It's not my favorite either for foot washing. <laughs> I mean, but just like for for other reasons, like smelly <laughs> feet. To touch people's feet. <laughs> I don't know. Just like for for reasons that I don't know that seem normal to be. Kind of like, Ugh. But before I clarify that, I was going to ask you something, uh, Carlos. You said you walk on your feet. My ableist imagination is spinning. Like, what do you mean by that? Could you clarify yeah. that for me? Yeah, yeah, right. Um, so walk on my hands. Essentially, yeah, walk on your hands I, walk with, I walk with crutches, um, but forearm crutches that have a full cup around them. And so what that means is most of my weight is actually borne by my hands. Mm -hmm. And when you think about post-COVID realities, right, what yeah. that means is I'm actually not able to wash my hands as much. I'm touching surfaces that other people don't think about touching. Right. Um, I might put my hand on a surface or lean against something in order to maintain my balance. 
So the upper part of my body has way more contact with surfaces, people, and stuff than most people do. And if you can imagine walking on bare feet, you know, during Jesus's day when foot washing would have been like, you don't do that. The servants do that. And that's considered unclean. Uh, my hands are pretty analogous to that in, in sort of today's world. Um, so, yeah, it was I, I'm pretty confident in saying now, as I think back on it, I don't think there was an awareness of what was happening when it happened. I think it was really just the spirit saying, I hear you even in that trivial prayer, because to me, it's not trivial. And I yeah. see you even in this complicated space, because to me, it's not complicated. Right. Um, and you and you can trust me. You can be brave with me, even though I'm not safe. In the way that you might want me to be, because you're still going to be in some uncomfortable situations, but you can be brave because I'll always have your back. Hmm. hmm. Well, yeah, you know how many times you touch my hands, Josiah? <laughs> well, I was saying that this is basically the same sort of uh, situation you got going, right, Latia? Exactly. It's a, yeah, same type of crutches. I hate it. Listen, listen. I'm not worried about it. I got four little term factories that I room with. So <laughs> they bring home. They're just living petri dishes. And man, isn't that the truth? Yeah, I got I got kids, and one is currently sick right now. If you hear him in the background, but um. Follow-up question that I I've I don't think we've touched on. And every time Latia is like, try to be ableist. I'm like, I don't really actually want to be a jerk though. So I'll I'll get as as ableist <laughs> as I, I can get, but not even really, probably. Latia's gonna be like, that's such a softball. Whatever, whatever, Latia, chill out. Um, <laughs> can we can we just talk about wardrobe? Because I've never really talked about it, um, especially with folk that uh have to be in front of other folk, right? Like to to wear a certain thing in our so me and Latia got our start in the Nazarene world. And there was a time where like, you weren't even allowed to have pants on if you were a woman, right? Like there, and there's just a whole bunch yeah. of stuff that was going on. So what goes into, I generally speaking, I'm just curious, my ableist imagination is going crazy. What goes into wardrobe selection when you, you know, when you're struggling with, uh, I, the foot washing thing just set that off in my brain. Like, okay, we need to talk about it. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to the day when we can all hang out because I don't have to worry about y'all being like, hey, we're feeling holy. Let's wash feet. Yeah, it's never going to happen. Don't ask me to do that. Don't touch <laughs> me. Um, so wardrobe. Uh, when I was younger, wardrobe didn't really factor in at all. Um, mm. But what I remember is when I was really young, um, you know, kids still living at home, not in elementary school, but the young. Um, I remember really struggling physically to even get myself dressed, mm -hmm. right? And that was a really hard thing for my mom um, because I'm, I'm, I'm Latin and black, which means I'm, I'm stubborn as hell. So I <laughs> was like, I'm going to do this and come hell or high water, I will succeed. Um, now, some of that I don't think is bad. Some of that's unhealthy. We've already talked about that tension, but that's that's my world. So I remember a moment. There were probably multiple, but I just remember one where I'm upstairs in my bedroom trying to get dressed. And it was, you know, sweatpants with elastic waist because they're easy and a T-shirt, you know, things like that. And I'm struggling and, you know, hitting things, hitting the floor, rolling around. It's not going well. Ultimately, I end up somehow 
wrestling these clothes into submission onto my body. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, my mom tells that story and says she was downstairs in the kitchen weeping because she could hear the thuds. She could hear me banging around and she knew if I go into that room, I'm getting a shoot in my face or something, you know? <laughs> yes. and so she let me struggle. Um, and that was, I'd like to say that's like, oh, well, you know, that's my life. And then I, I do it and succeed. And, and no, I, I think that basic, basic, what, what, what non-disabled people or temporarily able-bodied people might term basic things for me took intense struggle and sometimes still do. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it, eventually, I think in some ways, because of being uh, attached to physical therapy, a lot of time in the gym and, and things like that, things like getting dressed in the morning um, became less and less challenging. Mm-hmm. But what stepped into the gap was when I'm in a lot of pain, which happens more now. That it depends it, on the day. <laughs> yeah, it depends on the day. That dictates what I wear. Mm-hmm. So for me, um, if I'm not in much pain at all, you might see jeans, you know, t-shirt, whatever. Um, but if I'm in a lot of pain, you're probably going to see me in a three-piece suit. And for a lot of people, that doesn't make sense. But the reason is because suits are tailored. There's not too much pressure or gap on any of the material. It's fit for you. They're easy to put on. Everything slides. It's light material. It breathes. If I start getting hot because the pain is too much, I'm not going to sweat as much. And so the appearance might be, this guy looks really put together. In reality, it's because I'm coming apart. And it just happens to be the thing that works for me. Um, I've heard other people who live with CP and the TI, I mean, and I'd be interested to know kind of what your relationship is with this, but they say that's why I wear sweats. Is you know same concept. Um, other people have found and embraced adaptable clothing lines, where the seams are in different places, buttons and zippers, and things just sort of come around you instead of you trying to make them fit around your body. And I haven't I haven't had to do that, um, but yeah, I do think about what I put on. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people think about it for other reasons. For them, I, yeah, I would say I think about it. Um, and sometimes that means I wear dresses, but there's two reasons for that. One, I need to do laundry, so you need to be able to dress. And the other one is because it was easy to put on that day. Um, mm-hmm. But I remember going to, and I don't know if you did, Carlos, um, uh, it was like a preschool, but it was called United Cerebral Palsy. So UCP had like a preschool for kids. So I was there since like I was three. And what I had to learn was they had these little boards. I don't know what else they call them that like had a zipper on them. So I had to practice like zipping things. And then I had to practice like tying my shoes on this thing. So those sorts of like everyday things that people yeah. who don't have disabilities. Have to do. So I, but I, yeah, I don't think about them in terms of like struggling to get things on but i think about them in like if i have to go to the bathroom what can i get out of fast 
Because yep. when I have to go, I have to go. Like when you, especially when you, because CP makes you spaz. So when there's like the pressure to go to the bathroom, it's just worse. So I'm yeah. like, okay, which is why you'll never see me with those like fake nails. Cause that just takes too long. <laughs> like I gotta like, <laughs> so, <laughs> so mine, yeah, yeah. So mine <laughs> is not necessarily in terms of pain deciding what I wear, but in terms of like, how long am I going to be out, and and if I have to go to the bathroom? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I remember having to explain that I once, only once. But when I walk into a room, especially now, where um, often when I'm somewhere, it's because I've been asked to be. Yes. Weird, but but um, so I'm there for I'm there to do something. I'm not just there to hang out. Right. And I I really don't like I can just be really blunt. I really don't like buffet style eating or. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> now they're like, oh, it, it's just convenient because you can get what you want. I'm like, no, like that's not convenient. That's not convenient. <laughs> so I hate that. And I also don't like when I walk into a room and, you know, it's like big tables that are like connected in a big circle or something. You got to walk all the way ahead around to the other zip code to get to a seat. And I'm like, and the worst combo is when it's buffet style seating and the seating is like that. And I'm like, the devil has come to roost. Hey, you know, like, not, it's the worst. But but what, what makes it bad on top of that, though, is when there's seating and it's assigned and my seat is literally in the one corner that I have to walk around everyone to get to, and it's the furthest away from the door, which is the furthest away from the bathroom. Yes. And I'm like, okay, today my faith is tested. For <laughs> the end of this meeting, and call me home so I don't have to go to the toilet. You know, like, yeah, yes. <laughs> but I had to explain once um, in a room like that. We weren't having a meal, but it was set up like that. I said, please do not think that I am not present because I'm looking around for the nearest exit. Yeah. It's because I know that if this is more than an hour long, I had to avoid drinking anything. <laughs> That's what I do. Hours before I got here so that I wouldn't have to deal with the potential panic of my bladder with CP, which says as soon as I got to pee, <laughs> I got about 10 seconds to get to a toilet. Like there's no medium. It is zero to 60 like that. And it was it was a bit of a tongue in cheek moment. We kind of laughed about it, and then I rearranged some seats and sat next to the door, and everyone was cool. But like, I hate doing that. You know, it's like, oh, I hate doing that so much. So yeah, that's real. Um, I will actually wear pants that I can undo the button on with one hand because yep. it's quick, right? Um, and I never thought about the fact that that's conscious for me. Until I was giving someone else with CP some advice. Because they were struggling. And I was like, oh, well, this might make some things easier for you. And then I was like, I do all those things. But I do them because I've had accidents. Right. It's incredibly embarrassing. Though it probably shouldn't be. It's incredibly embarrassing when you're out in public. And you're like, I was, I was two steps shy of a bathroom in not enough time. And as a result, this. 
So I actually keep a spare set of pants and a spare dress shirt um, in my office and some pair, uh, some like spare socks and underwear and stuff like that, just in case, um, because you never know. And yeah, it, it's perfectly normal when you're talking with someone who has CP. But here's the thing. I didn't know that was normal. Nobody told me that was normal. And then I started hanging out with people who had CP and they're like, oh, that's totally normal. And I was like, where have you been all my life? Like, <laughs> this is, I didn't know this was normal. So there's a certain amount of like learning how to be disabled. Yeah. That was robbed, not robbed, that's strong. Um, it wasn't given to me because it wasn't seen as something that was a valid experience that I needed to learn how to do. It was something I needed to learn how to overcome by being with people who were, quote, normal. And then as I got older and started doing ministry and then became a disability theologian, I started hanging out with other people who had disabilities. And I'm like, y'all are better at this than me. Where have you been all my life? And and then I realized, you know, things like needing to get to a toilet, that's totally normal. Uh, Nothing to be ashamed of. And I'm like, life is easier when you realize you're not the only one like you in the room. I, I don't have a car, but I often carry an extra change of clothes for that reason, which I very rarely need, but it helps me to know that I have them there. But like, I often get jokes like, why is your bag so heavy? I'm like, well, one, I don't have a car, so I can't like keep things uh-huh. in the car. But two, I was like, I just carry extra stuff. <laughs> That's it. Um, I carry what I need back home. <laughs> <laughs> Um, although we kind of indirectly answered this question, let me ask it directly since we've asked our guests directly this. So if you were given this magic pill or because we are in church circles, right? If you were offered this this prayer that would make you not have CP anymore, would you take it or would you get prayed for? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so it depends, right? When I was younger and I uh, didn't have kids, wasn't married, I would give a philosophical response, which was like, well, do I know everything I know now? I just don't have CP. Then, you know, maybe. And then there was another part of me that was like, well, my brother's kind of, yeah, uh, he he and I are very different. I'll just put it that way. So my brother, he's the guy who was running up tree trunks as a kid and falling out of trees and landing like a cat and not being injured at all. Like every, he was athletic. <laughs> and that's a, that's a that's a gross understatement. That's my brother. And I was learning to put on clothes, you know, so like we're very, very different. But because of that, we also had differences in temperament. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that I am more patient. Um, I think that I have a certain insulation from becoming arrogant. Uh, and, and all, and, and, you know, those are two things that I think are attached to living with CP. So could I retain those character traits that I, that I think are good and not have CP? Then yeah, maybe I could let it go. That's what I would say when I was younger. Here's what I'll say now. 
the journey that I think the Spirit has brought me on has resulted in I want to serve God faithfully. If God desires for me to be embodied the way that I am, then so be it, for I am the Lord's servant. If God desires to remove my form of embodiment or change it for the good of the world and the glory of his kingdom, then so be it, for I am the Lord's servant. Here's where the struggle comes in. I look at my wife and I recognize that being with someone with a disability like mine results in more being required of her. And I see the price of that. I look at my daughter and I know that she will not have certain experiences because I can't give them to her. She was pretty sick recently because kids are always sick, you know, and uh, she's in the hospital. She had an upper respiratory infection and she was, I mean, she, she's Latin too, right? So like she's stubborn as heck and like the doctors are trying to help her and she's like calling down curses and she's 18 months old. So like she's not having this and uh, she doesn't, she, at the time anyway, she didn't sleep really unless I was holding her or nearby. And so what ended up happening was the entire time we're in the hospital, I'm holding her and she's sleeping on my chest. And I'm sitting in a chair that's really uncomfortable with all kinds of hospital trauma coming to the service anyway, because I hate hospitals. Uh, yes, I, yes. And uh, all I could think in that moment was I'm exhausted. I have fatigue issues anyway, and I'm not sleeping for two, three days straight. If, and this is all because, you know, my daughter needs me and that's great. But then we got home from the hospital and I was exhausted. My wife's exhausted. And my daughter had very pr practical things she needed that I struggled to do because I'm tired. Now, on one hand, that's every parent. But it, it's exasperated when you're like, I already have mobility issues and energy issues. That, those are the moments when I'm like, God, let this cup pass. It's not me. Right. I'm, I've got 34, 34 years in the bank on this. I'm, I'm pretty good at it. Not me. It's when I start to see that it costs my wife and it costs my daughter. Now, any good partner like my wife says, yeah, but we gain far more because you are who you are because of. OK, great. She's a better Christian than me. She's a saint. That's <laughs> real. But. But as a husband. I look into her eyes and I know that she has to be a parent and a half. I know that. So if there was a magic prayer and all that would just be removed, would I take it? If it was for me, no. If it's for the glory of God and the good of the world, then yeah, okay. If that's if that's what God wants. But if you're if you're stripping away all those particulars and just asking me based on my family dynamic, I'd do it in a heartbeat because their life would be simpler. And that's a hard reality that I wish I could just push past. When people say, you know, embrace disability, it's beautiful, love your body, love yourself. And I'm like, I believe that, I do. But when you're holding a dying child, a bit dramatic, but work with me. <laughs> when you're like, whoa, dying, okay. You know, all of a sudden it's like, if my limits could be in a different place so that the risk of what's going on now isn't as palpable, I'd do it in a heartbeat. And it has nothing to do with loving myself. It has everything to do with loving that little girl. Yeah, good answer. And also, like the complexities of it, that like 
you by yourself would be fine but it's because of like your family and how you perceive it it affects them yeah and the, the part that makes that um that gives me the freedom to say that i guess i'll put it that way is because my 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 partner does not put that on me right my daughter when she when i walk into the room she's not thinking dr dad she's not thinking reverend dad she's not even looking at me and saying you know my dad's crippled or whatever she's not thinking any of those things she just sees poppy that's it yeah yeah i'm just her i'm just her father and so there's no conscious sort of awareness of the fact that she's born into a world where she's paying a price she didn't agree to she just loves me and and my spouse just loves me and I can love I them. wonder though, and like I hear you as someone that also has a disability, but I wonder if that's true in some ways of everyone, right? Like oh. when when you have a kid, whoever it is, or a wife or a husband, yeah. uh whatever our limitations are or our personality or whatever, right? You, we pay a price for that in some ways, Absolutely. whatever those things are. Yeah. Hundred percent, I would agree, and and I think that that's that's sort of where my wife lands on a lot of. She's like, "Hey, I agreed to this, but in the same way that everybody agrees, so so even even I mean even the three of us, right? So we're not dot we're not you know committed in a matrimonial bond or anything, but like there's a certain commitment to showing up with integrity and offering friendship to one another as we grow." Right. Mm-hmm. And and when we enter into that kind of exchange, marriage, friendship, community, you name it, um, there's a certain sort of limitation meets limitation. And we don't get to predict the sliding scale of that. So um, my wife does not live with a physical disability. And all it takes is, you know, one life experience or one accident. Bam. All the limits are in a different place. That's the reality of being a human creature. Right. So you're exactly right on that end. You can take it one step further and say, by virtue of being a human being, you have limits. So the only difference between someone like me or you is that we don't have the luxury of denying those limits. Right. Other people who do not live with explicit disabilities exist in a temporarily able-bodied space where they can deny those limits, but they're still human. Right. So to my knowledge, you know, Josiah is not over here being like, I'm going to teach my kid how to fly. <laughs> you know, we all have, all have limits. <laughs> yeah, Josiah, don't teach your kids how to fly. Okay. I mean, they, they attempt to do stuff close to it on the reg, but we have to tell them to stop jumping off of high spots. But I, I, it's not, that's not me. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I have a couple more questions I'm going to try to get to. One is, Kind of what do you think is a misconception, or maybe that's the wrong word, but we're gonna go with that. That right. those without disabilities have of people with disabilities that you have experienced or thought about. Yeah. Yeah. Um well there's there's a couple that I think relate to life with CP in particular, but how they intersect with my disability versus my race. I, I don't know. Um, because I can't read minds. But 
One would be people often assume that um, physical disability equals intellectual disability. And there's nothing wrong with intellectual And there's disability. nothing wrong with intellectual disability, right? And people often assume intellectual disability equals physical disability. Right. And there's nothing wrong with physical disability. So, so um, what I've, especially in my line of work, but also long before I became um, anything professionally related to this, I begin to see that people lean so heavily into their physical perceptions of the world and don't question their senses at all. So you see something and then you make all kinds of assumptions and then you begin treating people as subhuman as a result of how you interpret those assumptions. Um, so again, okay, let's say that I, I did live with intellectual delays of one kind or another. There's nothing wrong with that. But what you've done in assuming that is remove my ability to tell my own story, mm -hmm. right? Which further then cuts out my ability to be myself. Um, I experience that all the time with brothers and sisters and community members that I live with. People see them, perceive they perceive a particular set of limits and then approach them with those assumptions and don't let them tell their own story. Mm -hmm. So that's dangerous. Um, so as a sort of antidote to that, I, I would say, um, remember that we are human beings. And so what we see in the world is limited by our experiences and how we sort of interpret the world. So what you think you see and know, be willing to question that and slow to assume that you're right. And then let people tell their own story. Um, the second one is living with a disability then makes you asexual. <laughs> Lies. Right? Well, like, not all, not for everybody. That's true. But yeah, for most, I would say. Right, right. So for some people, like some people do identify as asexual, right? right. But, but that's a separate situation. Exactly. Right? It's only totally separate. Yeah. It's not like, it's not like you have a disability, therefore. No, no. And so, um, my experience has been at one extreme or the other. It's either like, okay, well, you have a disability. Therefore, you should not be in an intimate relationship. You should not get married. You should not have kids. And no one's going to be interested in you in that way. Um, and then the other extreme is, well, no, not quite the other. But the other statement from there is, and if they are, it's deviant. Mm -hmm. Right? And then the next extreme is, creating a fetish right um or what some might term inspiration porn right um i've experienced both of those extremes and it's it's really it's damaging um even if you don't feel it right away it, it it's quite damaging because then what people are doing is they're perceiving me they're perceiving me as a whole bunch of assumptions Mm -hmm. right um so i am not i'm not carlos who has a certain set of experiences a certain a certain call a certain you know certain interests likes dislikes um i am a person with cp and you either find that arousing or not and therefore you either want to be around me or you don't um and if not i have no part to play in any of that right so it's really really damaging um i don't i don't really know what to do with that one if i can be honest like that one's always kind of weird because i'm like I, I don't 
I don't um I don't identify that closely with the marriage between disability and sexuality. Um, so it's confusing for me when people do, right? right? I'm not saying there's no room for that move. I'm saying it's not the move I make in my head. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've I've had people say, uh, I really like you and you know, I like I want to be with you and I'm interested in you or whatever. But uh, then I talked to my family and my family sort of said, hey, that's great. But like, what about in 20 years? Are you still going to be interested in this person when their disability requires more of you? And then they say, we can't we can't pursue this. Right. Um, my response is very similar to what uh, you said, Latina, this idea of like, well, isn't that kind of a question for everyone? Because we can't predict the future. But you let go. I've also experienced the other extreme where people will kind of treat me like a gigolo and it's weird. <laughs> yes. I'm told yep. you. It's like, oh man, I don't need that. I, I just, I don't want that. <laughs> um, and if, if, if this is something where I am a body, I am not a person, then like that's equally damaging. Right. Um, yeah. There's a statement that a scholar, um, he's a, a medical doctor who's retired and, critique the medical field pretty heavily, but did it in a balanced way. Named Eric Cassell. There's some problems with some conclusions he uses, um, but there's a lot of good in some of the statements he makes. And one of the good statements is bodies do not suffer, persons do. Mm. Um, And part of being a person is being embodied. Right. So you can't like divorce this, I think. You can't. You can't. And I think that um, though the subjects are different, I think that that principle actually sheds some light on why conversations around either uh, assuming someone's asexual or hypersexualizing is really damaging. Because what you're doing essentially is saying, I either love your body or hate your body. And that's mm-hmm. all it is. There's no person involved there. There's no, there's no theological anthropology being engaged where God is good. And, and creates something beautiful and then gives life to it and then says, go and be in community with people who can love and care for you and you for them in return. And out of that can come intimate engagement. But we're extremes. I don't know. They're they kind of I've experienced both of those, though. And I'm like, whoa, buddy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, no. Just slow down. Um, yeah. <laughs> um. So wondering two questions and we'll end here unless there's something you want to also say that we didn't talk about is if you were to encounter and since you are a professor on a campus, um, someone with a disability who feels a strong call to ministry, what mm. advice would you give them? Oh, yeah. Um, that's a common thing um in in sort of where i'm located and what i do it's a common thing and and the advice i wouldn't necessarily call it advice mm-hmm. uh, i would say maybe just a caution and an encouragement mm-hmm. uh, the caution mm-hmm. is you will be so tempted to make god in your own image to cope don't do it um nancy eastland who's sort of the like godmother of disability theology we all yeah. owe her as an ancestor for most of our theological frameworks and then yes. we from there right um this in some ways 
is part of my issue with this idea of the disabled God. Mm -hmm. um, I know what she's doing. She does it brilliantly. But mm -hmm. there's there's this move where she ends up in a spot that basically makes God in her own image rather than her in God's. And it goes unquestioned. But she does that in order to, in many ways, cope. And the danger of that for us today, people with disabilities in ministry, is that we look for spaces where that goes unchallenged and we think those are the only places that God can use us. And then we become separatists rather than prophets, visionaries, and shepherds who challenge the status quo. So resist that temptation at all costs. And then think bigger. Know that God is bigger than your limits. And that's precisely the point. So the second encouragement then would be recognize that as a creature whom God created from dust and breathed life into, you are a creature. Being limited is part and parcel for being human. So don't let people tell you you exist in order to teach me how to be a better human or you know, your your charism is to be a receptacle of my charity or whatever else. Instead, um, lean into the fact that you are an embodied human being whom God's created and therefore can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not a different size one, not a different type one, same Holy Spirit empowered for ministry wherever God sends you. Not just to people who you might perceive to be like you. Mm -hmm. And then surround yourself with people who can pour into you when you stop believing that. That's good. So you also uh, a good challenge to Nancy Eastland. Because I actually like that image of it. And yeah, yeah. in the same way that other liberation theologies uh, for sure. It says that that like there's a space in in how we understand God that can include disability, but I can I can see that too. Yeah, and that part I'd get behind. This yeah. idea that like God is not wholly other from disability, just not. Right. Um, the, the fact that Christ had limits is part of the incarnation. That's part of being. That's human, right. Right. Um, where I where I get a little bit confused, though. Again, I understand what she's doing. I see the use for it. Is when 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 Christ is disabled, that sort of removes the logic of the fact that after the resurrection he had pierced hands pierced feet um and a pierced side but his back was completely healed his forehead wasn't bleeding he was levitating uh he was walking through walls he was a problem <laughs> it was the super crypt okay super crib. Like, you know, like, yeah like like <laughs> no like no no real sort of disablement and yet maintained Good all point. the forms that would be disabling that's right. And so what I say to people is what the resurrected Christ might show us. And this, I think this is really cool. I don't know. Um, is that, is that God, the question is disability in the world because of sin literally does not matter anymore because Jesus exists in the body. He exists in post-resurrection because of sin. And then, and then God says, Ascend, son, perfect, holy, beautiful, good, stand at my right hand with marks that were put there by sin, and they're not disabling him. 
And so at the very least in that paradigm, what we see is God shifts what's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Whether or not disability exists, we don't really know. But what we might be able to extrapolate from Jesus is one, it's not going to limit you in the way that it might on earth. Two, beauty is something that God wholly redefines, which includes what the world might define as broken and bent. Right. Whether or not it's because of sin. And I think that's really great. I do. I like that. I like that framework. And then lastly, what would you get advice or encouragement would you give to folks that are on ministry boards or discerning yeah. together with folks with disabilities, their call to ministry? Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking, you know, you have you have ministry boards that oversee nonprofits, you have elder boards that, that help oversee churches, right? So they're in positions of sort of power and holding how decisions are made. Um, one question, and that would be, why are we not quicker to question existing norms around what what is right, what is success, um, what is done well? So what would it look like to just slow down the time frame that we expect things to be done in? So worship ministry is a good one that's easy to point to, right? So um, there's almost no people with disabilities leading worship. Um, there's very few people with disabilities that are involved in the preaching and teaching ministry of the church. And when you ask why most of the time, it's because, well, they're hard to understand because, you know, speech is labored. So slow down. Um, listen more closely. Because I promise you, the language that Jesus was using when he was spreading the gospel was super hard to understand. And it wasn't because he was speaking in weird sort of philosophically abstract terms. It was because he was challenging existing paradigms. There weren't categories for it. So I would say if you slow down, all of a sudden a speech impediment isn't an impediment. It just has to, things have to move at a different speed. Um, so instead of saying like, this person is gifted, this person is anointed, therefore we know God's calling them. Maybe the question you ask is, how do we shift around our existing way of doing things so that all whom God has call, have called to us can actually contribute to the us, mm -hmm. right? Um, and people in positions of power are the ones who have to make those decisions, Shifts. Mm -hmm. right? not easy but it's got to start somewhere um i have a friend who doesn't live with a physical disability that's apparent in any way until he opens his mouth and then he has a severe stutter um but he believed his whole life that he was supposed to be a preacher and in college he was pretty shy about that and um I was sort of stewarding a college ministry at this time. And I, I called him one week and said, Hey, can you come and preach? I was in college too. I mean, he was um, one year ahead of me and he said, no, 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 no. Like we don't have enough time for that. And I said, how much time do you need? He's like, what do you mean? And I was like, sermons in our context are usually 30, 40 minutes, which is too long. But um, 
And he said, well, I could probably do a 10 minute sermon in about 30 minutes, um, maybe 40. And I said, not a problem. Now, this is way before any sort of disability theology frameworks are a part of my thinking. I just wanted people to hear from this man. And so he came and he preached and what he asked of me, not that I think this has to be done every time, but what he asked of me was to sit next to him. And if if he started struggling so much that he couldn't get the words out, then he would ask me to sort of translate a word or two here and there. Um, it ended up being a phenomenal night because things moved at the right pace for people to actually engage with people they otherwise would overlook. That's the body of Christ. The body of Christ. I love it. Is there anything that we haven't uh, said that you want to be sure to say? Anything you want to plug? Um, yeah. Well, that was the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, here at Western Theological Seminary, um, we also house what's called the Center for Disability and Ministry. And that's sort of a place where a lot of what we're doing is gathered into one place. And so we have the D-Man in Disability Ministry, a Doctor of Ministry degree that um, students with disabilities and students who work very closely with people with disabilities can pursue to better prepare them for ministry. We have MAs in Disability Ministry. We have a graduate certificate in Disability Ministry. Um, and we produce resources for the church, for pastors. But we also work with people that are well known in the, the field of disability theology, like John Swinton, Jill Harsha, uh, Ben Connor serves as a director for the center. Um, but the Friendship House and the Friendship House Fellows Program is also housed there. And so here's why I say all that. When people tune into a podcast like this, ideally it gets the conversation started because mm -hmm. they're engaging people who have a ministry context that they're embedded in, like, Josiah and you, but then at the same time, they're also hearing the voice of a woman who has a doctor of ministry and who lives with a disability. And so like you see the value of saying there's more to learn. There's more to be shaped by. And Western is a place that can take some of the foundational stuff that takes place in a conversation like this and put some meat on it. Right. So um, I would say if you're tuning into this podcast, and you're listening, and some of what we've talked about is of interest to you, then don't let the conversation stop there. Reach out to Western Theological Seminary. You can email me at carlos.thompson at westernstem.edu and think about taking a class or doing a graduate certificate, maybe doing a doctor of ministry, because the more people who learn under and around people like Latia and Ben Connor, John Swinton, Jill Harsha, myself, and others, um, we then have the tools to change the way that things are done and change the way that people think about certain things, but also be different people ourselves so that we're not unintentionally wounding people with ableist paradigms that have been broken for generations and are just breaking people in return. Um, Holland, Michigan is also a great place to suffer for Jesus, right? So, like, it could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You've sold me. <laughs> and I already have a demon. So maybe I just need to hang out. I mean, you know, you could come get two. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> That's hard. No. <laughs> The 
Millennial Pastor Podcast was created and produced by Byron Certain and Josiah Jones. This season's guest host is Latia Frazier. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please be sure to rate, review, or subscribe and visit themillennialpastor.com for more podcasts like it.